Hello, 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 and welcome along to episode two of the Mild Man of Army podcast with me, Mild Man of Max. But let's clear a couple of things up straight away, shall we? Number one, this is not an episode. I think we can all agree on that. This is a trial, a second attempt at podcasting. Second of all, I'm not entirely sure that we can even call it a podcast. The podcast conjures of images of people like Richard Herrings, Rahila Stifel, Adam Buxton, or All Killer No Filler, or the Magnificent Oasis podcast, or any one of a number of fantastic uh, people who are doing incredibly interesting and creative things to a very high standard. This is me sat at the risk of upsetting younger listeners in my pants, in my sitting room, uh, talking about Britpop. So, to today's episode, uh, I've just done air quotes around that, despite the fact nobody can see me. That's a worry, isn't it? That That's not a good sign. You, you're not in safe hands with somebody who does air quotes at the best of times, but somebody who does air quotes when you can't see them, that really is concerning. Anyway, this episode is going to be uh, very important for me. Um, we're going to spend a bit of time uh, talking to uh, one Patrick Duff, who was the uh, frontman with Strangelove, who were not a Britpop band, really. Uh, in Patrick's own words, as you'll hear later on, they were an experimental band, an experimental band who happened to exist at the same time as Britpop was happening. For me, they were incredibly important, because in amongst all the, the fluff and the giddiness of Britpop and the sunshine and the bright colours and the positivity and the mood for change of Britpop, I was still, like I'm sure many of you, afflicted by dark nights of the soul, tormented by the notion that possibly things in my life weren't really working out the way that I wanted them to. And so it was very important to me that there were bands like Elka and Marion who were dealing with those types of emotions, but specifically strange love they spoke to me in a very very real and very very powerful way and it was a great pleasure for me to speak to patrick and to hear some of his thoughts and we cover it all um there's a bit of strange love there's some of his solo stuff we delve into uh, albeit briefly uh, carl jung uh, shamanic native american rites of passage and we remind ourselves of the glories of the uh, maker shaker tour of 1995 so Without further ado, let's uh, hear what Patrick Duff had to say. Hello, is that Patrick? Yes, it is. How are you doing? I'm very well, Patrick. Yeah, this is... Sorry, it's been a bit confusing today. We all, we all have days like that, I think. <laughs> yeah. What other kind of... <laughs> well, I think, yeah, that's that's pro- that's probably true. Although my, my gut feeling is that those days are probably more frequent when you're Patrick Duff. Oh, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that could be true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, listen. This this is well. It's, it's it's very kind of you to do it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, my pleasure. Well, I'm I'm genuinely um very touched. If I can be a bit gushy to begin with. Um, I, I have to tell you that uh, very many of uh, Strange Love's songs, and indeed lots of your solo songs, mean a great deal to me. Um, oh, thank you very much for saying that. That's lovely. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things for me, Patrick, is that 
I'm, I'm going to use the B word right at the very beginning, you know, about Britpop, because of course, Strange Love were not a Britpop band, but you were there when Britpop was going on, and in amongst all the the fluff and the jolliness and the you know the the kind of technicolor, it, it, there was there was something very very comforting and reassuring about there being a band, or at least a person you uh, who was talking about and singing about the other side of things. So thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I don't think like I had any choice in that. It was just like what was coming out. But it's really lovely to hear that. You know. Well, listen. I wonder if I can start uh, not with with Strange Love, but I, I wonder if I could ask you about a couple of things from uh, Luxury Problems back in two thousand and five. Sure. So th- there are there are lots of things about Luxury Problems that I really like, and there are three particular lyrics lines that that I'd like to talk about. So they are from, from King of the Underworld, which I love, uh, Follow the Road You Chose. I wonder, has Patrick Duff followed the road he chose, or is there a road that has chosen Patrick Duff? Well, I think that's probably what's in that line, you know, because I think although the line came out in a very spontaneous way, somebody else is telling me to follow the road I chose and I think they're sort of saying like you chose it you know you might not think you did but you did choose this road sort of thing do you know what I mean so like yeah. some kind of fate or destiny I think that's what it's about yeah and, and so what about fate and destiny are, are these things that you believe in um, I think that I, I think that we have a lot less choice than we might feel we do you know yeah. do you know what I mean when you just think about it you're born aren't you into a situation that you've got no control over when you're a baby and, and loads of things happen to you and they're all beyond their, your, your control and then you start to sort of like your personality is formed by those things none of which is under your control and eventually you got you get this sense of having some kind of like control over the situation but actually when you think about that that's just been put into you hasn't it by your situation. Do, do, do you see what I mean? I think I do see what you mean, yeah. You're, we're, we're just sort of like being, we're just being blown around, you know, the, the whole thing's been going on for millions of years, you know what I mean? And there is a kind of momentum to life, the cap that you're caught up in. Yeah, you, you, you definitely have the sense, we, 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 we're given the sense that we're kind of like, that we're living our life and we're making these decisions ourselves, if you know what I mean. But actually, I question whether that's Really true. The reason that, that that line kind of popped out at me is because of yeah. all those things that are that were being revealed just now. You know about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and you know Google and the, the information that they have about us and their ability to apparently sway uh, even very important decisions that we're making. So I, it, it, yeah, it, it seemed particularly um, to, to resonate just now with, with 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 things that are going on. So yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think that's okay, you know. In the end, in the end, I kind of like I've got to a place where I kind of trust life, you know. I mean, I don't trust Google or whatever, but I trust life. <laughs> I trust whatever it was that put me here, you know, which is life, or you know what I mean. Kind of like as I've got older, I've trusted that more and more. So, and that's that's I think what that song was about, like the kind of like the dawning realization of that, because obviously in Strange Love. There wasn't that sense of trust in life. There was a real sense of like 
panic and fear and, you know, all sorts of dark feelings, I suppose. But, but that road kind of, like, has its own wisdom, you know? For sure. And, and anyway, and, uh, yeah, I, I feel like the king of the underworld was my sort of, like, unconscious was really opening up around that time. All that imagery was flooding into my brain, all the imagery in that um, song, which came in like a very dreamlike way, a very natural way. And, and with that kind of like connection with the dream world, I started to trust life more, you know. So, yeah, I hope that's a good, I hope that makes sense. It, it, it does make sense. Uh, two things come out of that for me. Number one, I think the next time you go on tour, you need to have the quote, I don't trust Google, but I trust life on a t shirt. <laughs> I think I think you could make a lot of money out of that. And I think... Where are you from? Where are you from? I really love your accent. Where oh, I'm, are you from? I'm based in Edinburgh, up here in Scotland, okay, yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that an Edinburgh accent I can hear there? I, I think so, yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's, nice. it's probably slightly, slightly uh, warped by the fact that... Um, I married way above my social class to a particularly uh, well well-bred young woman, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is and 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 also, of course, it's affected by the fact that I'm I'm trying to impress one of my uh, heroes from my early twenties. So, uh, oh. well, let's let's gloss over that. Let's gloss over that. So we we don't trust Google, but we trust life. And then the the, the second thing that you said, there, which was interesting, was about how either that song or those songs were coming to you in a sort of very dreamlike state. So, you know, how 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 do songs come to you, Patrick? I mean, I heard you say on an interview that I watched uh, on uh, YouTube the other day that, you know, possibly some of the things that you wrote in, in Strange Love really were very spontaneous and maybe didn't have any particular, you know, meaning or thought behind them at the time. You know, it was just in the studio and that's what came out. Is is that still the case? Is there still a mixture of ways that songs come to I you? Mean, I, I think I think they came. In, I think that coming spontaneously doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything. You know? Okay. Because I think I think like I might have written things kind of like quite quickly, maybe sometimes in Strange Love, not all the time, but often. But it didn't mean that they didn't mean anything because they were about how I was feeling, or you know. But they were definitely about my feelings, I'd say. And so, is is there a process for you? But the process has changed, you know. It's just changed, and now it's got to a point where it really is. It, it's more and more like dreaming. Songs are like dreams in the sense that you don't, when you have a dream at night, you don't. It just comes, doesn't it? It's very natural. And yeah. Or the imagery comes to you, and you're not doing anything about it. It's just coming, and it and it comes when it wants to, and it's just got its own energy. And now it's like I songs are a bit more like that for me. I just, I don't really want to manufacture anything. I wait for them to come. They come with their own imagery, with their own kind of vitality. And I just try to, because I know about the form of songwriting, I just try and give that impulse as some sort of a form that I can present to people. You know what I mean? Like I do. But the actual way the song comes is pretty much nothing to do with me. Yeah. To do with it. It's to do with me in the same sense as like a dream's got something to do with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's it's some part of me communicating with me, you know? Some some part of my psyche or whatever it is is communicating something to me. And and it does it in the form of a dream. 
and that's how I feel about songs now. It's a part of my psyche. You know, something that I've learned or something that I need to try and understand or, you know, and I trust that part of myself and it's trying it's trying to kind of like, it's trying to get something to me, you know? And, and there's something in that process that's very enlivening and it's really life-affirming. And, and it's exciting as well because there's a mystery to it. Those songs are like that. Whereas, you know, there was a song, there was a time when, I felt like I'm a songwriter and I need to write songs to justify my sort of like existence. Yeah. Do you know what I'm trying to say? And I, I need to fucking write some songs because I've got to like learn some money, you know? Like, what am I going to write about? I think that's a good place to be as well. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I've been in that place. I've written some great songs from that place. But just now, it's turned into what I've just described as, as the more kind of dreamy type of thing. It's really interesting. I mean, there's something almost Jungian about that, about this idea of the, the, the subconscious, about dream states, about... The thing that's popping into my head is, um, I, I don't know if you know that, the, there's a great story that, that Jung told when he was sort of being asked about the idea of coincidences. And he, he tells this story about having a, a, a client, a woman, he'd been working with her for a long time and they, they, they weren't really getting anywhere because, I mean, I, I'm paraphrasing, she wouldn't shut up. She just kept talking. And and the the fact that she kept talking meant that they couldn't get to where they needed to be in this sort of psychoanalytical relationship. And then she started talking about this dream that she'd had about a, a beetle that had kind of, you know, knocked on her window. And at exactly that moment, there's a sort of tap, tap, tap on the window of, of Jung's office. They go to the window, they open it up, and this sort of scarab beetle-type thing appears. Wow. And and from that coincidence, they were able to get to a greater truth. You know, it caused her to stop and pause. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling something similar about this kind of process of allowing the songs to come and then taking you to somewhere else, taking you to some kind of yeah. truth. That's really interesting. I, like, I, think, I think that kind of, yeah, something like, I, don't, I haven't read lots of books by Carl Jung, but I definitely have an understanding of him, you know, for sure. And that kind of way of looking at things makes sense to me because it marries out my own experience. You know? Yeah. The kind of things I've read that he says, I can go, yeah, that's right, sort of thing. Yeah, that happened to me. So, yeah, yeah I, no. like to, I like to, I like to do things like that. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's a, I go, yeah, that's right. Huh? He's, he's a fascinating character. Definitely, yeah, he's great. I, th I, th I think he's, he's, he's much more interesting for me than, than Freud. You know, there, there's, there's something yeah. much... Um, there, there's, there's something warmer about Jung. There's, there seems to be something, yeah. you know, more human um, and, and less detached. magical or something, right? I think so, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, there's something magical about him. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Strange things happen to him as well. But, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. All right, so th there's another song on luxury problems, which um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that this particular line will, will take us to Carl Jung, but it's in Married <laughs> with it's in it's in Married with Kids. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, first of all, a caveat: I, I'm I'm married, and I really like being married, and I have a kid, and I really love yeah. that kid. Uh, but yeah. but flicking through Exchange and Mark. Drawing circles yeah. round the lonely hearts. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, the the thing I thought about as I was listening to that, you know, I've listened to a lot of stuff uh, since I've got it in my head that I wanted to speak to you was 
you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? You can be in the most, and I don't know if this is peculiarly male, you can be in the most lovely, happy, secure place as a man. Um, you know, I, I, I guess it must be the same for, for, for women as well. You know, I've got a, a lovely wife and a, a lovely child. And yet, every now and then, I do wonder about drawing a circle around the lonely heart ants. Do you, do you think the song is saying something about, you know, how yeah, yeah. how we are? I think, I think that was like, I wrote that song with a friend of mine, actually, called Annie McGann. Uh-huh. We wrote that song together, married to the actor Paul McGann. You oh, yeah, yeah. Within, within our life. That's right. We, a good friend of mine. And so we, when I, I wrote that song when I was recording Luxury Problems, which we were in Dartmoor. I was with, like, some brilliant musicians, actually, at that point, who were recording the album with me. We were in a cottage in the middle of nowhere, and I just had the riff, and I had the idea for that song. And, yeah, and then me and Annie kind of, like, almost in a sort of conversational way, got that song together. You know, I mean, I did the melody and the chords, but she, me and her both talked out those lyrics in a way, and I think it was at a time when I was in my 30s, and a lot of friends of mine were getting married or had that situation. I wasn't in that situation, but I was around it a lot. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, it was just like fun. It was really good fun, you know? It is. It's, so, it's, a, it's a wonderful song. That, that that line just always tickles me. Yeah, it came out of conversation, really. Which is a really nice... I haven't done that much work like that. You know? Most of the work I do is pretty much on my own, but that song... Was like I consider like that I wrote it with Annie, you know. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. We were talking and having a laugh, you know. Because when you look at it in that song, in a funny way, the person with the power is the is the woman. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I don't know whether that would. I mean, I could have probably written that, but I think like Annie's a pretty powerful woman, and uh, yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was good. All right. So I want to go to um, the Mad Straight Road now in two thousand and ten. And one of the things that I, I I read from you around about that time was about kind of the, the, the influences, the things that meant most to you around about that time and how they'd kind of come to you and, and then, you know, out of that had, had come the mad straight road. And the, the, the list of influences that, that I read, and it may be a misquote, of course, were things like the Beatles and the Kinks and Bob Dylan and Nick Cave and Johnny Cash and, you know, I, I was ticking these off and saying, yeah, okay, I could, yeah, absolutely. But then you also mentioned Disney soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Could you say something about that? Yeah. How that influenced that record. Yeah. I think it the best way I would explain it is, is like, I can remember being, I was in my early 20s, I was suffering from addiction to drugs and alcohol. I was in a dreadful state. And I was with this girl, she had blackout curtains over her windows. But she never drew the curtains. It was kind of like pretty dark in a way. Yeah. I woke, I woke up one morning. I, I felt like I was withdrawing. I felt absolutely terrible. And my attempt to try and feel better just made me feel worse, you know? Anyway, so there would be there was like a black and white portable television in the room. Turned that on. Just to try and come up with some kind of distraction. And that song like went... Wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. This came on, do you know what I mean? With all yeah. the harmonies in it. And I just like, that just like, something like that makes me weak, you know? Like properly cry. 
because it would have sort of reminded me of my childhood and of a kind of like innocence and a sort of like just a much better time when I just because what me and my family did was we watched TV you know what I mean yeah that's what we did we came home from school and we just watched TV and we went to the cinema sometimes to watch Disney films I suppose I can't even remember but anyway that sort of thing managed to seep into me and so like it carried something from that time I love the harmonies. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that there. I love the rich harmonies of it. And people call it sentimental, but I don't know what that would, I, I don't know what that would really be, actually sentimental, because it went into me when I was a kid, you know? It went into me, that kind of music, when I was in a state of innocence. Yeah. And it stayed, and it stayed there, you know? And it carried parts of me, and it held parts of me intact, you know? And... Obviously, when I was in Strange Love, it wasn't like those parts of me. I wasn't really mining that kind of part of me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I would have been in a position where I would, if it even occurred to me, like to make something that sounds like this, you know. But by the time I got to the Mad Straight Road, like I was much more open about what my influences could be. I was much more conscious about what they could be and what they were. You know. And when I met the, had the Mad Straight Road. I mean, I'd written songs like Dead Man Singing, Spider Woman, Poor Old John, Ed's Not Dead. There was a lot of songs on that album that just had a kind of like fairy tale kind of quality to me, you know? Yeah. And I wanted like, I wanted that album to sound like a fucking soundtrack, you know? I didn't have like a studio and a whole orchestra to do it. I just had, you know, you know, relatively speaking, basic kind of like means at my disposal. But that's what I was trying to do, you know. I was trying to kind of like make it sound like, uh, yeah, that kind of feeling that I had as a kid, you know. Yeah. When I heard that music, how comforting I found it. And um, how magical I found it, you know. It's funny, you know, you mentioned not understanding what that word sentimental means. I, I tend to agree with that, Patrick. I, I think that what people mean when they say that something is sentimental, certainly when they say it in that kind of negative way, oh, God, that's yeah, so yeah. sentimental. I, I, I think all that is is a verbal shield to stop people revealing their own emotional state yeah. and reactions to things. It's like, well, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's almost like a sort of emotional snobbery, like, oh, I couldn't possibly yeah. enjoy this thing. People say when people say something sentimental, it's like you, it's exactly what you're saying. It's like a put down. That's right. Or that it's lacking some kind of like intelligence or something. But actually, sometimes the way we learn, we learn about we learn about emotions, we learn about our heart when we're quite young, you know. And I don't think we really, you know, it's always there. You know, you can shut it down, like you say, but it's kind of there. That sort of vulnerability is always there. You know what I mean? You could still cry at a Lassie film or something now, you know what I mean? At the bit where Lassie runs over the hill at the end back to the little owner or whatever it is, do you know what I mean? And yeah, people would say that was sentimental in a put-down way, but those tears, like, if they come from my eyes, uh, at something like that or at a Disney film, and it is those things that are often the things that make me cry, you know? Um, because there's a kind of innocence to them, there's a lack of cynicism, there's a belief that there's some sense of justice in the world and that things are simpler than they really are or something, I suppose. But you know what I mean? 
but I still want to believe in those things, and I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong, you know. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> I, I, th- I think I do. I think, you know, I, 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 I tell you what I'm wondering just now. I'm wondering what, what would a world without sentiment look like? And would I want to live in yeah. that world? You know? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I, I like the fact that if I watch, you know, something like, I don't know, uh, the, the, the big build on BBC, you know, and they're, they're building a house for some family who've, you know, been hit by some terrible misfortune at the end of the show. Yeah. You know, the family are in a better position than they were and... You know, all these people have come together to do something nice. I don't care that a TV production company have made that happen. I like that I'm crying. I I feel good about the fact that I'm crying. I feel good about the fact that people have done something good. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I don't watch TV, but if I was watching that film with you by the side of it, I'd probably be crying as well. I would would think, I would see that as a a, a sign of success. Absolutely. even though perhaps you are being manipulated by somebody who knows that, who cares, you know? Well, I don't mind because lots, lots, lots of the music that I love, Patrick, is also manipulating me. You know, hmm. certain chords, you know, minor and major keys, you know, that they're being yeah, chosen yeah, yeah. to elicit an emotional reaction from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good, yeah. good. That's, I want, good. I want that's to have good. an emotional reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, I, 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 yeah. Anyway, I was going to say something very cruel about a particular song then, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, yeah. Right, okay, what about Visions of the Underworld, if I can uh, turn your attention to that? I, I, I think out of the, the out of your solo work, not that I'm any kind of expert, so you must treat this with the contempt that it probably richly deserves, I really love this record. When I looked at the list of titles, it reminded me of some of those influences we've just talked about. I could, I could see um, Nick Cave, I could see Johnny Cash writing a song called Julie of the Rose or Henry James or Hail Holy yeah. Queen. And then I listened to it and I heard other things. I heard, you know, um, very pastoral things. I heard, you know, uh, Vashti Bunyan and I heard, um, you know, very sort of English things. Um, And and yet, you know, without ever being that kind of particular brand of Englishness that sometimes infects so much pop music, there was just something really delicate and um, emotional and warm about the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's not actually a question there, uh, so let me, let me let me think of a question. Yeah. Um, right here you go. Here's a here's a question. I think running through all of your work, um, and certainly on those songs, uh, it would be true. There is some sense of truth. I never feel like when I listen to something that you've been involved in that anybody is going through the motions. So mm-hmm. how how important is it to you to be truthful? That album was well. When you finish an album like The Maestro Road, a few of those songs are already about, and they just didn't seem like they belonged anywhere yet. Yeah. But then when you when you finish something, you put it out into the world. Whether or not it kind of like is successful or not, it's it's successful for you because your creativity kind of really recognises it, put something out, and then it kind of like starts to work on the next thing you're going to put out or something, you know? And so, and I wrote all those songs, yeah, after finishing The Mad Straight Road. And then, my mum gave um, all of me and my three sisters and my brother 500 quid that had come from food from my grandmother. Uh-huh. I just thought, what am I going to do? I'm not just going to, like, I want to do something with this 500 quid, you know what I mean? I don't want to just, like, 
and little taxis and fucking <laughs> health food or something. You know what I mean? I'm going <laughs> to actually do something with it. So I, I've been touring around Germany. This promoter out of there said to me, oh, there's this guy in Bristol called uh, Rich Brown. You should, like, get in touch with him when you get back. He, you know, he's really into recording. So, anyway, I got in touch with him. I just started the quiz, and I decided to go to this cottage where I'd been with Adrian Utley to record um, Luxury Problems. I'd always remembered this place because there's a guy down there. His name's Nigel Shaw. His wife's called uh, Caroline Hillier. They're an amazing couple. They've got this beautiful cottage in the middle of Dartmoor, and I just really respect them. And there's something about that place. So I, I just thought, right, well, I'm going to just go and I'm going to record these songs that I've written. Because after the Magistrate Road, and I just tried to make all these arrangements, you know, they're quite rich, that crowd's got quite a lot of stuff going on on it. Yeah. And by the end of it, like, even though it's quite an uplifting album, like, the cover is just me fucked, do you know what I mean? That album, like, really took it out of me. Really did. I mean, it's another story. I need to record this in a more simple way, you know. And I was, I was in a quite a kind of like, I was in a mood gun where it was just like, and I'm just going to do it myself this time, you know? Yeah. I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm just going to do these songs. So anyway, I went with Rich, and there was this idea that somebody had told me, actually, that when, um, when the Native Americans, they all had to go out and have a vision when they were kind of like going from being a young man, a young person, a teenager into a man. Uh-huh. They were taken out in the wilderness, and the sort of like shaman guy would draw a circle in the ground and he would say to them like you are not allowed to move out of this circle for three days whatever happens you know yeah and they were left there and after three days like a vision would come to them you know they wouldn't eat or anything and i mean it doesn't might not sound like but not moving out of circle whatever happens that's quite scary you know what i mean so I just, that really struck me, that idea. And I thought, I'm going to like, I'm going to do an album like this, because albums can sometimes go on and on and on for ages, you know. Yeah. I'm going to book this cottage for a week. I'm going to play these songs, and that is what the album's going to be, you know what I mean? It's going to be a bit like that circle ground, and I've got to just do everything I can to get it out of there. But that was the plan. So I took the songs I had, and I recorded them in this cottage, and... It was funny because when I was recording Luxury Problems, the music was a lot louder. We were playing loud, so, you know, there, there wasn't, like, loads of bird noise and stuff on there. Yeah. Recordings. But when I did Visions of the Underworld, it was, yeah, I was playing really quietly. And it was just like there was birdsong all over it. But we were trying to, like, block it out for ages. And then we just thought, like, fuck it, we, we can't block it out. Let's just actually open the windows, you know? do the opposite that's what I did I, I recorded it all in a week and came back and I didn't like it and um, it just sat with it for a few years and then a few years later I, this, I, this guy started managing me and I played it to him and I pretty much said actually and he listened to that album really stunned and he phoned me up and just went this album's fucking amazing <laughs> I love it, I love it, you've got to put it out the way it is, the way it is. And his enthusiasm was just so great that I said, okay then, and I put it out, you know. And I'm really, really glad I did that. I probably wouldn't have done it, if it like that if it wasn't for him, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I, I'm I'm glad it came out that way. I'm glad it came out that way. Yeah, it'd be remiss of me not to say at this point that when you agreed to speak with me, um, my my dream was that you would tell a story like the one you've just told, <laughs> involving Native Americans and circles in the ground and you know, sort of deeply spiritual experiences. You know, because you know we 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 create ideas in our heads about you know the. the the people we put on pedestals, and that that story I think better than anything fits the idea I have of who you are. No, there's there's something I wonder if I can just. This might sound a little bit self indulgent, but my my plan is that you know I'll listen back to our conversation here and I'll kind of piece it together and we'll you know fiddle around with it and then we'll. Um, put it up on the site alongside a, a piece that I'll write, and I've I've started writing a piece about sort of specifically about strange love, really. But I think it'll touch on the the, the, the solo years. But I've I've written. I want to read you the opening two paragraphs, and then I want to ask you a question about that, right? Um, okay, great, yeah. Which which I know sounds really self indulgent, and I'm, I'm. It doesn't. It doesn't sound self indulgent to me. And I'm I'm not a writer. You know, I'm not a trained writer. I'm not a professional. I'm just a bloke sitting on his sofa in his bed in the in his sitting room in Edinburgh. But anyway, so I have started this piece like like this. I have said, um, Bristol isn't a city that enjoys the sort of attention for music that the likes of Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield and London do. And that's unfair because over the years there have been several really interesting, peculiar, groundbreaking and influential acts to have crawled from the tote end road to stardom. The Brilliant Corners, Portishead, Massive Attack, The Pop Group, Ben Gunston, Tricky, are a few of the Brizzle contingent to have made their way into the ears and hearts of the nation. A variety of sounds and styles, but bound together by a willingness to look at the darker side of life. If misery loves company, it must feel very much at home in the home of the gas, outrageous and free that is Bristol. Strange love were Bristol's contribution to Britpop, except they were never really Britpop. They were something else, something other. Alongside maybe the likes of Marion and Elka, they presented an alternative vision of what British pop was. Eccentric, outsider art, edgy, troubled, sure, but yet somehow still wedded to the notion of motion and emotion in the music. So, my question is, am I right? Where... Were you the dark heart of the Britpop thing? Or did you feel part of the Britpop thing? Or do you reject the entire thing completely? Yeah. And that 
was going in maybe in that direction. But I think at heart, Strange Up is an experimental band, you know? And so, and that's certainly how it was when it began. And so when you're an experimental band, you do all sorts of things. And some of those experiments were trying to make like pop songs, you know what I mean? Yeah. Some of them were like 10 minute long things like Fire on the first album. You know? Yeah. Like, we, we tried all sorts of different things, and at heart, that's what we were. We were an experimental band. I don't think we ever really quite knew what we were ourselves. I don't think we ever knew it. Yeah. But I think looking back on it, that's what we were. I think that sits well with my own interpretation of things. I mean, I, I, I'm probably in the middle of a midlife crisis, and so I'm looking back on the uh, Britpop era with certain rose-tinted uh, rose spectacles, you know. It, it, it was, you know, uh, it, to, to quote Supergrass, I was young and I was free, you know, and I was keeping my teeth nice and clean. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's right. I, th- I think Strangelove were always something on the other side of it. Now, it, one of the, the, the people that I mentioned in that little list of sort of Bristol bands... Is a guy that you probably don't know. He's a guy called Ben Gunston. Who? Yeah, yeah, he, I don't know. Right. Well, Ben was in a, a sort of Britpop band at the end of Britpop, along with Alan White from Morris's band called Johnny oh, Panic. Yeah. yeah, and um, some of those songs that Johnny. I mean, they they had a deal. They released a single called "When I Drink I Love You More," which was a yeah. lovely, very kind of Morrissey esque title. And then Alan went back to the the Morrissey thing um, and took some of those songs and they became, some of those tunes became quite big hits for Morrissey, interestingly. But Ben then had a couple of solo albums, one called Merchant Venturer and one called Songs from the Corner of the Room. Um, And he's a, a, you know, he is what he is. He's a singer-songwriter. I I happen to think he's one of the great kind of lost acts of, of our times, but that's just me. Anyway, I, I was speaking I'll to him. him yeah, I think you should. I, I think you would probably find something to enjoy, to be honest yeah. with you, Patrick. But Brilliant. I was speaking to him about this conversation, this impending conversation, which I'm sure you now wish you'd never agreed to. But Ben saying, "No, I'm enjoying it." His his view was, and he very much like you sees sees Britpop in the same way. You know that that it's kind of yeah that there were there were nice things about it, but it, it never did anything for him. He couldn't connect with a lot of those bands. But he has a theory that actually the best band, the best band, the band who could play best, the band who pushed things the most, the band who tried to do something to move things along, were Strangelove. And he, he, is, wow. he, is, he is adamant about that, that, that he came to see wow. you very, very early on playing somewhere like Froom or, you know, some, one of these yeah. other satellite uh, villages. And he, he said he was just blown away by it and it's never left them. So I think you're right. And I don't think it's just you who sees Strange Love in that way. Oh, that's nice. That's nice, yeah. I mean, like, when, yeah, when I just think of all the people who are in it, like, they were like, Joe was right, really amazing stuff like music on the bass, Alex, Julian. You know, there was like, I was writing music. There were four of us writing music, you know? Yeah. And I wrote with the lyrics and melodies. So that in itself is quite, you know, that's going to throw up lots of different angles straight away, you know what I mean? Absolutely. But, you know, I like Oasis Blur as well, i got to say, you know? I like them. I like that music. But I don't think we were just, we were in, able to write stuff like that, you know, it just wasn't in us. When I, when I write, when, when we did try stuff that was more like that, I don't think it worked so well, you know? 
Yeah, I think I would agree. A, a, a couple of months ago, I interviewed, um, haha, interviewed. Listen to me, the the Parkinson of the Britpop years. Um, I spoke, I spoke with um Harold from Elka, who you of course. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of Wicked. course. Yeah, just, uh, just, just. <laughs> I a, he had a few good stories. You know, I I saw <laughs> Elka supporting Morrissey at the Battersea Power Station back in '95, wow. and what were they like? They, they were. Oh, yeah. They were beyond phenomenal. They, 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 I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge kind of Morrissey obsessive, and um, yeah. I have to say, he he has a knack of picking bands um, that quite often, you know, he's he's picked them. I th- I think his reasons are to be questioned why he's picked certain bands. Um, maybe to make himself look even, you know, better, more important, whatever. I don't know, but. Um, Elka, Elka blew them away. They 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 blew wow. them off the stage. I mean, wow, wow. they they were magnificent. And you're right. Yeah, he had some interesting stories, and he was a, a very warm, very friendly, very charming man. But he also, Patrick, I have to say, had very nice things to say about you yeah. and the band on that tour, and about yeah, Strange yeah. Love's music. Do, do you feel that you were in some ways bedfellows with a band like Elka? I just felt. I mean, I just remember. Like, I can remember us. They used to give us PDs every day on that tour, you know. Like, this, the tour manager would come up and say, like, here's your money for the day, you know. Yeah. And I can remember persuading Alka to throw, we were in somewhere like Norwich, by doing a gig by a canal or something like that. <laughs> I can remember persuading Alka to throw their PDs into the river, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I did as well. Just like saying, like, we're going to be like, I don't know, it was absolutely mental, actually, you know? <laughs> it was absolutely insane. There was another band on that tour called Pusher Man, and they were all drug dealers, and then most most of them are dead now, you know? That's right. I mean, it, it was just like, oh my God, and, but it was brilliant as well, that was so brilliant. It was absolutely hilarious. I really got on well with them, you know, like, I just remember getting on really well with them. I sort of like, I didn't, to be really honest back then, I wasn't really thinking about music, you know. It, it, I didn't really think what they were like, or I didn't. I, I just liked them as people and got on with them, you know. And I can remember saying, um, they had it all sketched out that we were supposed to go. They had a running order, and Elka were like right down the running order, you know. I think they were supposed to go on Thursday every night. I can remember saying to them, you can have our slot tonight, you know? Yeah. Stuff like that. Just because I liked them, you know? Well, I I am actually sitting uh, with, in front of me, I'm sat with the edition of Melody Maker from November the 4th, 1995. Wow. Which which is the Maker Shaker Tour edition. And there was a little tape, (laughs) and I've still got the tape as well. Um, and here's here's why I ask about being bedfellows. What here here are the two quotes that the the interviewers so Sarah Manning interviewed Elka and uh, somebody called Sharon O'Connell interviewed you. And here are the two quotes that sort of highlighted from the interview. So this is Harold. Harold says, "I'm fascinated by all forms of deviancy, but that's not to say I run around whipping people." And then, and then you say, Patrick, the things that matter to me. Are not appropriate to be discussed with other people. Yeah, <laughs> 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 
I must look at I must look at those two quotes about once a week, and I just think to myself, you know, I, I was in a band for a little while, and I just I just wish that I had been on a tour with Patrick from Strangelove and Harold from Elka. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by deviancy. Oh, I can't talk to you about what I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's here's a sort of um, a final question about um, Strange Love, and then I'll let you go back to your Friday evening. So, on the on the Wikipedia page, and uh, as we all know, Wikipedia is the font of all knowledge. There's a a story about Strange Love, um, and it concerns you. And um, so there, there you are. I don't know, 1991. So you'd have been I don't know, 24, 25, something like that. Um, because lest people forget, you were born just uh, four weeks before England beat West Germany in the World Cup final. Um, so I, I see you as a, a, a totemic figure in English history. Um, and the, the story goes, apparently, that David Francolini rolled down a car window after seeing you on the street and shouted, get in the car, you're going to be a pop star. Is that true? Now I want now I doubt you can remember this, Patrick, but I I I would like to know how you looked on that day in nineteen ninety one that made him realise you were going to be a pop star. Uh, well, he sort of knew me from I'd like I'd I'd been to a few parties that he was at and I'd played guitar and he him Alex. And Joe were in a band called The Cold Trains, and they had a singer, and I'm afraid I can't remember his name, I think his name was Mark. But Dave, Alex, and Dave, especially, were incredibly ambitious, you know? Yeah. They were were really incredibly ambitious, both of them. And they were both, in their very different ways, like absolutely hell bent on success in music, you know? They needed a singer, you know? They needed a singer. And in those days, I think singers had to have a certain kind of charisma, you know? And actually, when I look back on it, being a bit messed up, being a bit out there and unconventional, what people were looking for in a singer, you know? I don't know if it's like that nowadays, but it probably still is, you know, to a certain extent. A singer has to fulfill those kind of roles. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. I actually was those things, you know. I really was those things. And I loved music, and I could hold a tune, and I had a gift for writing lyrics and melodies, you know. So they... But I had no... I have to say, then, had no real ambition. Brought upon by... You know, when I watched Top of the Pops when I was a kid, and I don't know, you saw whoever was on. Those people were like gods, you know. Yeah. I had no sense whatsoever that could ever be me, you know what I mean? Not in a million years. It just didn't, you know. But they had that sense. And they saw in me what they need, what they felt they needed, you know, to kind of like complete their band. So without that, I, there's no way that I would ever have been in music, you know. But I suppose, like, in a way, the way that I was, 
was part of the reason we got signed, you know, not the whole reason, but it was part of the reason we got signed, you know. Yeah, for sure. Because, because you know, there was like an intensity to the performance that was real, you know. So, yeah, it's a really good story, and it kind of like, and it really is, it's the, it's the truth, you know, about, and, and actually he'd, he, yeah, I was walking around with my guitar and a piece of string, <laughs> you know, pretty kind of like torn clothing, you know, proper rags. And he he just, he, he, what he actually did was he came up, he, he parked his car, he drove up a million miles an hour, he was a fucking lunatic, though, you know, really in, in the nicest possible way, you know. And he wound up his running, he says, what are you doing? Have you written any song on that fucking guitar? And I said, yeah, I have, actually, because I've just written my first song. And he just said, get in the car, you're going to be a pop star. And drove me back to his mum and dad's house. And we went up to this, like, attic room where he had a four-track recorder, a Tascam four-track recorder. And then I recorded Zoomed Out with him. He put a drum machine on it, and I did the screaming. And that was the first thing we did, you know? And my life changed. My life changed a lot after that. It really did. And my life is never the same. So I am really indebted to him. I'm really indebted to him, and I still feel that now. And I'm really indebted to Alex, because he introduced me to Alex. And Alex um, had a kind of like, had something about him where he had a bit of, he was, he was wise beyond his year. Mm. And, I, and I could feel that then. I don't think I really understood it fully. But he really was, you know. And so the combination of us was what made it happen, you know. Without those two, yeah, my life would be very, very different, I think. I don't even know if I'd be alive if it wasn't for them, if I'm honest, you know, without without being dramatic or anything. No, no, I'm, I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a good story and it's true. All all the best stories are. Um, yeah, well, yeah, true. Listen, just if I said that was the final question, so th- this this isn't a question, but it's a kind of final thing. So I have a, uh, yeah, I have a confession, and uh, I'd I'd like you to hear my confession, Father Patrick. <laughs> so um, one of the the B sides, and I can't remember which single it was now, but it was a a, a cover version of um, "If I Can Dream," of course, by by Elvis. Yeah. Um, yeah. which starts with you sort of saying, this one's for my mama. And yeah. um, round about that, that time, I mean, I, I I really fell hook, line and sinker for, for Strange Love. I can vividly remember where I was when I bought Time for the Rest of Your Life. And I, I, but, but yeah, I can't remember how I knew about it, but I, I can remember on the day of release, sort of going down, I, I had digs at university in a town just outside of, of where I was studying. And it was a nowhere town, the Scottish town. I mean, there was nothing in it, but there was a record store. And I can remember going down um, and buying Time for the Rest of Your Life on CD single uh, and uh, taking it home and, and being kind of, without over-egging the pudding, but like f- just sitting looking at the cover. And and yeah. you know, kind of try to figure out what was 
going on and you know what what, what, what was this face and Anyway, and then listening to the song and, and No One Will Love You in a Thousand Years just rang round and round and round in my head. You know, it kind of sat with exactly how I viewed myself at that point. You know, I was very kind of lonely and very unhappy and I, I you know, kind of thought, you know. But then, you know, that being balanced out by that line about, um, you know, the, the rest of your life is close by. And I thought, well, that's fine. No, it doesn't, doesn't matter if nobody loves me because the rest of my life is really... So anyway... Uh, fast forward a few years and we have uh, one of the singles uh, from the second album with this cover version of uh, If I Can Dream. And there was a girl that I was trying very, very hard to impress. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I recorded that cover version <laughs> and told her that it was me. Uh, <laughs> because I could just about over yeah. the phone, do a passable impersonation yeah. of what that, okay. yeah, what that might have sounded like without production yeah. values added. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and that that actually worked. It led to her being quite kind of enamoured with me um, until yeah. until she was sort of sifting through my CD collection and, and popped that record on. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically what I want is... I would, <laughs> I would like both your understanding and your forgiveness, Father Patrick. Never meet your heroes, they say. Now, I know, I didn't meet Patrick. Uh, we chatted on the telephone. But I've met or spoken to several of my heroes. Uh, and I firmly reject that piece of advice that you should never meet them. Uh, I found them on every occasion to be everything that I could ever have wanted them to be. And uh, that's never been more true than that chat with Patrick, who I found to be a charming, erudite, witty, intelligent, caring, compassionate, and perhaps most important of all, nice. So many thanks to Patrick for finding time to chat to me, and many thanks to you for taking the time to listen. I know that we don't exactly have high production values here at the Mild-Mannered Army, uh, either on the podcast or uh, indeed on the blog, according to some of the feedback that I received. But there you go, we, we, must, we must press on, we must uh, put our shoulder to the wheel, push along, push along. Please do think about having a look at the blog, it's uh, to be found at www.themildmanneredarmy.com or following me on Twitter at MildManneredMax. Thanks for listening and goodbye.